We have uh, a, 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 a psychic connection that wellness equals something that I can purchase. Wellness equals something that I'm in competition for. Wellness equals something that someone else has that I don't have. Wellness equals something that is not intrinsic to me, that is not organically who I am, that I have to acquire wellness, that I am not wellness from the start. Yes. Before we jump in, I want to tell you about a super special event we've dreamed up with Anasa Troutman of The Big We and Nicole Cardoza of Reclamation Ventures. It's called The Wellness of We. And it's an eight-day online journey from May 25th to June 1st to reimagine a wellness that works for everyone. Each morning, you'll get love letters and wellness practices from us, and each evening will convene live with special guests to tackle everything from worthiness to whiteness, from revolutionary love to reparations. And we'll be reuniting with the folks featured in this podcast, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, Anasa Troutman, Michelle Cassandra Johnson, and Sean Korn for part two of our conversation, Wellness Beyond Whiteness. The best part is that it's free and everyone is welcome. Just go to thewellnessofwe.com to sign up. And now for the show. Citizen Podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Citizen Podcast. This is Carrie Kelly. The following is a live broadcast that took place at a gathering to redefine wellness called Wellspring. And it features the courage and wisdom of some of my favorite people, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, Sean Korn, Michelle Cassandra Johnson, and Anasa Troutman. And it was radical because we said all the things out loud and upfront at an event where these things hadn't been confronted before. Things like the cost of whiteness in wellness, or how wellness isn't really designed for people of color, or the commercialization and commoditization of wellness, and what wellness really looks like beyond whiteness and capitalism. The truth is, we don't know what wellness looks like without whiteness because it's only ever been dominated by, controlled by, profited by white culture. So we're faced with the question, can wellness be fixed? I don't know the answer, but after this panel, I'm feeling hopeful that we are finally having the right conversations with the right people that could possibly reveal a new paradigm of wellness that works for everyone. Check it out. Hi. Thank you all for being here for this very important conversation. Um, today we're going to be talking about um, the impact of whiteness on our wellness communities and what it looks like to dismantle those systems and imagine better. And in the spirit of doing that, um, we'd like to take up more space than we've been given for this conversation. We've been given 45 minutes. And with your permission, we'd like to take an hour. We probably need like many more hours than that to actually have this conversation. But... So if you have to leave, if you have an appointment, you can go. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to get um, consensus that like we're going we're gonna to have this conversation for an hour. And I also think that will allow for us to take questions. Sound good? Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, so a couple things sort of on, on what this conversation is about. 
Um, the first thing is that this is not going to be a neat and tidy conversation. Whenever we're addressing gro the gross inequities of our systems, they, it just never is. Um, and so it's likely that this conversation is going to feel uncomfortable, you might be impacted, it might get messy at times, and that's normal. So I just wanted to start by like laying that groundwork. The other thing that I want to clarify is that when we, t when we say whiteness, we don't mean white people. What we're talking about is the culture and um, the behaviors that stem from white supremacy. Things like feelings of entitlement, taking up too much space, perfectionism, um, and so on and so forth. And we're going to kind of get into what that looks like. And lastly, you will not get closure from this conversation. <laughs> Rather, it will likely open up more questions. So we want to encourage you to be curious about what's coming up and let those questions percolate with you, okay? Um, fortunately, we are here with four amazing leaders and advocates who are going to help us unpack this conversation. Um, four of like my most favorite people in the universe, and I'm actually not exaggerating when I say that. Um, to my left, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. Spiritual disruptor, um, Buddhist sensei, and author of two books, the most recent kind of a runaway hit, Radical Dharma Talking Race, Love, and Liberation. Um, one more applause. Yeah. Yeah. Michelle Cassandra Johnson, veteran race equity trainer, yoga teacher, and author of this amazing book, Skill in Action, another handbook for how to confront um, issues of white supremacy and racism in our yoga studios. Sean Korn, world-renowned yoga teacher, co-founder of Off the Mat Into the World, and soon-to-be author of the much-anticipated book, The Revolution of the Soul. <laughs> and Anasa Troutman, founder and CEO of Culture Shift Creative, where they construct cultural strategies for folks like India Ari, um, the Underground Railroad, and she is the co-founder of the Troutman Institute of Wellness Equity. <laughs> And so we had the luxury of having um, a conversation before this, which was super juicy. And one of the things that we talked about was that wellness doesn't look the same for everyone. Despite often what we see in wellness media and in and, and the marketplace, right? It often looks the same way. It looks white. It looks skinny. Um, and so I think I want to start with that, this question to all of you so that we can get a baseline of what we mean when we say wellness. What does wellness mean to you? For me, wellness is um, really a self-determination. And that uh, then, you know, we can go anywhere from there. Uh, wellness means that I get to choose what it means for me to be well. Um, for me, that means um, not working nine to five. That means uh, having really ample uh, time off to be able to be in my inner life 
to um, have the, the people that I love also be well and have the places that I live um, be places that uh, are, are green and healthy and thriving, to have access to uh, care for my body that is not the institutional care you know, that's called health scare, I mean care. <laughs> um, you know, to not have to drug my body in order to, and, and actually have to fight for the opportunity to give myself um, things that are actually killing me and call that health. Mm -hmm. So it really is health, it, wellness to me is self-determination in, in all the ways that we think of self-determination. Being able to determine my gender, being able to determine who I love, who, uh, who I sleep with, who I uh, live with uh, um, and, and have, health, have housing that I can actually live in and afford, all of those things for me are wellness. Um, and, and most of all, it's the wellness of my heart and my spirit. Mm. Wellness, um, it means the space to breathe in a culture that does not make space for all of us to breathe. And so it means that I would have space to breathe and more space than my grandmother had because of her black skin and the time in which she grew up. And wellness means wholeness in a culture that fragments many of us. And wellness means, um, sometimes for me, it means being away from white people because uh, the only space where white supremacy doesn't really exist and still it's there is my home. And when I open the door, I face white supremacy um, and, and have to navigate it everywhere that I go. And so sometimes it means being on my own and sometimes it means being with folks of color to move into that space of wholeness and healing. And wellness um, means ritual, it means remembering to remember, it means having the space to grieve the collective losses that we've experienced as a result of how the culture was constructed, how the country was constructed, the things that you said about whiteness. Um, so it means a reconnection with the old ways, um, a reconnection with our grandmothers' grandmothers, the way of doing things that really was in the spirit of healing. First of all, I just want to say really quickly, a few years back, had you had this panel, there would not be this many people here. Mm -hmm. And it thrills me to my core as someone who has done these kinds of events for years and years and years, even the suggestion of doing a panel like this, you would have had a couple of people in the space and we would have been so anxious to have the conversation. So thank you, all of you, so much for doing this and being a part of this. It just, this to me is what wellness looks like. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, Wellness is being able to have access, whether it's sexual, financial, economic, uh, psychological, emotional, um, creative ease and abundance and freedom so that I can live my life fully sustained, so that we can live our lives fully sustained and not, to, and not have to live with the fear or threat of any of those imbalances that keeps us separate from or unequal to. And so um, wellness for me at this point, besides all the things that I mentioned, is also accountability. Because without accountability, I can be well in a way in which serves my happiness, health, and, and, and wellness, but doesn't necessarily serve the collective. Hi, everybody. I'm happy to see everybody. That looks so good. Yeah, you do. Mm -hmm. you look so good. So do you. <laughs> <laughs> Two answers. Um, 
what I almost didn't say, but the truth is I don't know. Because I don't know. Um, I think that what I think wellness is, is a definition that was built inside of something that doesn't allow for wellness. Mm. And so I find myself right now in going into this new venture around um, extending my, the legacy of my father's work around wellness and, and being able to have to confront the conversation that I actually don't know what it is because I think that what I thought it was was built inside something that doesn't serve all people and that's not well. So I'm in a deep, deep inquiry about what, what actually wellness is and what it looks like. But what I do know is what it feels like. And I know that wellness, whatever that is, um, is something that cultivates both a sense of joy and freedom in your whole being. When you know spiritually all of those ways and, um, and you are being uh -oh, the voice of God and you're... <laughs> And, um, and your wholeness is being served in an authentic way that acknowledges all the things about who you are and who you aren't. Mm. One of the things that I love that you said is that, um, you know, in the I don't know, right, yeah. wellness maybe calls us to question what we've been told yeah. wellness mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. which I think is a cost of whiteness on wellness. And so I think that's what I want to kind of tackle next. And I'm going to open this up now to the, the whole group in conversation. Like, what has been the cost of whiteness? And as we said, whiteness as culture, whiteness as behavior, um, whiteness as, you know, as, as it has been systematized and structuralized um, on, on the wellness that we're defining or that we're trying to define. Fine. Yeah. Anyone? I would love to tell a story. I just mentioned my dad, and this to me is the embodiment of the answer to your question, because there's a certain amount of terror that you live in when a system of wellness was built without you in mind, and even in some cases, built with the intention of keeping you unwell. So when I was born, I was um, born in the 70s. I'm probably a little bit older than I look. Um, there was a time when Fathers couldn't go in the delivery room in an emergency situation. So my parents were both people who worked in civil rights and culture and black power. And when I was born, my, my head was too big. Well, that's what they told. But really, my mother just wasn't, you know, her cervical wasn't big enough for my brain. So, <laughs> so we had to have an emergency C-section. And so my father is standing in the in the waiting room watching a f all white team of doctors and nurses rush away his wife and his unborn daughter feeling completely and totally and utterly unsafe and what are these white people about to do to my black family and nobody should ever have to be in that situation imagine not only the stress on my father but the stress on my mother being wheeled away by folks who she did not trust and had absolute reason to tr not trust right and the stress on me with my mother feeling all of that and my father feeling all of that in the very first moments of my life, to me, is a perfect illustration of the impact of whiteness on wellness. Yeah, I think the, um, a significant um, cost and impact on, on wellness is the association of wellness with money, uh, with wellness yes. with things that you have to purchase, with uh, having to get something else somewhere in order to have wellness and all of those things being made into products. And so, you know, immediately when we think of wellness, we, we start thinking of things like 
that you can purchase, you know, it's spas, it's tinctures, it's potions, it's balms, and it's not the stuff that, uh, you know, it's the stuff that's here, but it's not the, it's, <laughs> I'm just saying, it's the stuff in my bag. Uh, but, but I'm, and there's nothing wrong with those things. I'm not saying there's anything wrong, but I'm saying that we have uh, a, a a, a, a psychic connection that wellness equals something that I can purchase. Wellness equals something that I'm in competition for. Wellness equals something that someone else has that I don't have. Wellness equals something that is not intrinsic to me, that is not organically who I am, that I have to acquire wellness, that I am not wellness from the start. Yes. Well, and I think it's also worth acknowledging that um, it's a marketplace that benefits from our believing that we're not whole already. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, well, it's a marketplace at all, mm-hmm. right? That, that wellness is a marketplace is, a, is an impact of, of, what, of whiteness. That is whiteness, and that it is capitalized is whiteness uh, all over it. Um, what came to mind when you asked the cost, about the cost of um, whiteness and the impact of it on wellness was the people die. Mm. That was the first thought. And we actually have a, a, um, some commonalities in our birth story, and that's no mistake. It's the impact of, of whiteness, um, because my mother had an emergency C-section as well and woke up to no baby, and I was in a different hospital. And that's, that's no, there's no mistake there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that says everything about the cost of, of whiteness when we think about the wellness community. And the other cost that came to mind um, is about the assumptions that the wellness community makes about people and and people of color in particular, people who are marginalized, Um, the assumption that we don't know how to take care of our bodies and our spirits and our hearts. And actually, I know more about how to take care of my spirit and heart and body than white people. Um, And the cost is also not being listened to, not being believed, not being heard, um, not being seen. So I think those are some of the things that came to mind when I think about the cost of, of whiteness, which is actually killing all of us. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. And see, now my story obviously would be a little bit different because the cost of whiteness for me is something that I actually participate in each and every day, and I wouldn't be actually sitting here mm-hmm. if I hadn't benefited from that particular culture. My success was dependent upon, especially way back in the, the 90s, my success was dependent upon fitting into a standardized um, uh, system of beauty, if you will, that would be marketable to the culture. Therefore, my whiteness was the reason I was able to get as much attention as I got at that time, the reason I got on covers, the reason I got corporate sponsorship, the reason doors opened. It wasn't because I was a great yoga teacher. I earned that through time and practice and hard work. But the opportunities I was given was because of the way in which our culture celebrates whiteness and that whiteness equals wellness, health, wealth, beauty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so there was no cost of whiteness, but there was a price Mm -hmm. within it for someone like myself. Because there was no way that you can be a part of the yoga community at that time, someone who's deeply steeped in it and not recognize the ways in which you were simultaneously participating in the very thing that was causing this level of inequality, this level of hardship, this level of division. 
And so my experience would be different. I benefit from this system and my soul diminishes because as a yoga practitioner, my liberation is dependent upon everyone's liberation. That my freedom is dependent on everyone's. But how do I reconcile my own complicity? How do I reconcile the ways in which my life, there's an exhale as a woman. I know I can walk into a hospital. I know I can get what I need. Thank you, God, the exhale I feel in my body. And how do you reconcile that when someone else's body is holding their breath? And so my experience in wellness is different as a result. That also means that my accountability, my effort, my commitment has to be that much more persistent as a result of that. I think mm-hmm. I was going to say okay, I'm going to add just like a to like a um, to you two story. So the not being heard um, a couple of few years ago, I walked into the doctor and I said, you know, I my blood pressure is high. And I saw my blood pressure and they said it was high and they said, oh, that's common for black people. And I was like, yeah, but it's not common for this black person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I actually have low blood pressure. Went to a doctor again. Common for black people. Uh, they didn't track it. They didn't actually pay attention to it. And four months later, I was on the. I had uh, stage four kidney disease uh, that could have been caught, which my white doctor told me by actually attending to and giving me all the tests that I needed to. So I was I ended up out of work for two years, two years solid that I couldn't work uh, and was like ravaged by this illness because I wasn't listened to. Even my own my own voice with my own doctor saying like this is actually not what's true for me because I become a color when I'm in front of white people. That's right. <laughs> I think often when, um, when we, we start to um, confront and, and recognize what you're naming, the first thing we often hear people go to is um, to fit more people into the broken system, yeah. like to, to, to provide access without agency. And I mm-hmm. heard you speak about self-determination. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you, and, I, and we hear that a lot even in our community when we talk about inclusion. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you really like debunk inclusion. And um, there's a great quote by, by Ruby Sales that says, inclusion implies that someone owns the That's table. Owns the table. Mm-hmm. That's right. Damn, Ruby, did she say that? Because I thought said I said it. <laughs> I did, I just, you know, but, you know, that's a mama, so you have to give it to her if she said it, then it's hers. Inclusion implies that someone owns the table, and so what is, what is beyond inclusion? Well, so it implies not only that someone um, owns the table, it implies that when the person doesn't want you at the table, they can ask you to leave, and that's, that's more important than the fact that someone owns the table. So that was my question. I just asked you a question. What's beyond inclusion? Keep going. Um, you know, breaking the table and uh, rebuilding them together. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I was started this. Uh, so was starting a community, and it was like it, was, it really took a lot out of me to do it because it was very contrary to what was part of the Buddhist lineage and the the tradition that I came from. But I really knew in my heart that I had to do it. And I was talking to Mama Alice Walker, and she said, well, you know, Angel, she said, as, as long as white people um, uh, own some, start something, they will always own it. They will always own it. And I have found that to be absolutely true, there's, that there's just literally no such thing as white folks 
actually sharing what they have, they will always own it, that it has to be built from the start. We can build it together. Um, but I don't think um, whiteness allows white people in their heart and soul to actually really truly so-called include and share with people. So we have to like start from the beginning. And uh, starting from the beginning also doesn't mean one for one because the nature of inequity is mm -hmm. that uh, folks of color have to have more space. Marginalized people altogether have to have more space in order to be equal. So mm -hmm. it's not like we started together to be even. Mm -hmm. It would be me and you, Carrie, because that would always mean that you'd have a little bit up on me. Not as a human being, not as a soul, not as a spirit, but in the way we're going to sit down at a table and somebody's going to look at you for the answers, for the check, for the everything. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what we have to do. And, and I've heard you, Anasa, say that wellness can't be fixed. Is that kind of what you're speaking to? Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> because I think that um, the thing that I always come, keep coming back to was like this conversation about diversity and inclusion, which is like, I'm going to ask you right now to never use those words again. Never, Just, ever. Like, promise me, I pledge to not. <laughs> <laughs> Groundbreaking. <laughs> Never again are we going to say diversity. Because the truth is that we're, what we're talking about is actually being honest about the reality of our world. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about like, oh, we feel so bad that the poor people don't get to whatever. It's like, no, let's tell the truth about who we are and who we like, who is in who we are, and how to make sure that that we. Um, so I have this thing, this definition I made up about love, because I wrote about love for a year, and I was like, what is love anyway? People keep asking me, like, okay, I love you, but what does that mean? So, um, so I figured I had to figure it out. So to me, love is um, acknowledging your connection with another person in word and deed. So, of course, it's like the, the presumption there is that we're all connected. I'm assuming that if you're at this conference, you all, we, we, yes? yes? Are we all connected? Yes. Great. So then how do we honor that connection in both word and deed if you're somebody like Sean who you know and you see and you're like, I love you, or if there's some woman who is at a riverbank in South India somewhere who you'll never, ever meet in your life? Like, how do you love her? How do you love the, the father who is in deep South Jackson, Mississippi, who like didn't go to college because his family couldn't afford it. How do you love that man? And how do you, how do you pledge to his wellness as much as you pledge to yours? Because unless we're willing to make that kind of commitment to each other as a community, then no, we won't be well. We will never be well. Even if you get up and you meditate and do yoga and do affirmations every day and drink green juice and then go after class. Like, <laughs> even if you do that, the fact that you are participating and benefiting as a white person with privilege in those systems and there are people who you are leaving behind every second of your life, then you are not well. Mm -hmm. So unless we can have that kind of conversation, then we will not be well as a community, as a culture, as a country, as a world. Mm -hmm. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to do this work, especially during this pandemic, when we are being called to work harder than ever to expose the inequities of our systems and advocate for the policies that take care of everyone. We could not keep going without you. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. 
We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness. And we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But we can't do it alone. And building this community on Patreon is our way of sustaining this work in relationship and in accountability with you. By joining our community for as little as $2 a month, you help us create content and resources that matter to this moment. And you get lots of good stuff from us, like early access to our episodes, live community meetups, ally toolkits, and exclusive content. Not only does community support keep us going, but it keeps us accountable and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. Please join us at patreon.com slash citizen well. So we're going to break the thing. And I would imagine that given our different locations um, in terms of proximity to power and to access and to privilege, that we have, we have different roles yeah. in how we break the table. I want to say we have different access to uh, institutional power. I am very proximal to my power. That's right. Mm -hmm. that's and right. when we um, resign that's power right. to only something Relative that's out of, out of, outside of ourselves, like, that's inherently a problem. So we have different, we're approximately different to institutional power, uh, but not just power unto itself. Not absolute power. Not absolute power. Not inherent yeah. power. Yeah, and I want to I, I encourage people to like qualify what kind of power you're yeah. talking about. Because when we talk about power as neutral and then we make something power that's something that's negative, it's very difficult for, then for us to actually hold our own power. personal power in ourselves if we've just made like power a bad thing. I want to especially say that to folks of color, right? That we operate in this like, oh, power is out there and it's bad and we have to like sort of always be negotiating for it. You come with power and let's work on that. So part of uh, being in this work to move towards this, um, this new embodiment of wellness that we haven't yet defined, yeah. that, that we're reimagining in the moment, yeah. um, does require us to understand our proximity to, uh, to relative and institutional power. And I know, uh, Michelle, you've talked a ton about this, about how the role of white folks and the role of black folks in doing this work is different. It's not the same, right? We don't all have to be doing everything, or we don't all have to assume we're doing the same things. And so can you speak more to that? Like, how is it different? And how can we best locate ourselves in relationship to our roles? Yeah. Um I want to go back to love, and it relates to the question you just asked, because um, the system has never loved me. The institutions were not set up to love people of color. The institutions were not set up, the culture was not set up to love people of color or marginalized folks, people on the margins. Um, and yet, I've been asked to love the system, to trust the system, mm -hmm. to believe the system over and over and over. And so it, I, I want to name that because I don't actually feel like whiteness has allowed white people to be positioned to love people of color. If I'm thinking about um, cultural norms and dominant culture, I'm not talking about individual white people in the group mm -hmm. and oneness. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, and yet um, I've been asked to assimilate into the system and to love it. And so if we think about social location, it's a very different um, space for me to be in than you. Um, as a white woman. And uh, I feel like the, the work for people of color 
Part of it has to do with internalizing all the negative messages from the culture. So dominant culture says so many things to me about what it means to be black, about what it means to move in this body, um, a lot of negative messages, and those things are harmful to my spirit and heart and psyche. Some of the things that we named earlier, the parts of our system individually and as communities. And so part of my work is healing those wounds that come from living in this culture um, that says whiteness is superior and everyone else is inferior. And I don't believe those things. My mother told me that I was wonderful and smart and beautiful and I walked out the door and went to school and got very different messages immediately from the system. Um, and again, the system, the school wasn't designed to love me. And so I feel like part of the work for people of color is to be with each other and talking about the messages we're internalizing because we also can collude with the system and then replicate the oppression we're trying to dismantle. And so we have, worked, we have a lot of work to do around that. Um, and we need space to do that, which is one of the reasons I said sometimes I just need to be with people of color because there's so much we need to heal. Um, and I've been conditioned to caretake white people. And so if I'm in their space, like this, right? Um, I've been so deeply conditioned to focus on white folks instead of what's going on for me or other people of color in the room. Um, and I think, you know, for white people, I am not white. I think for white people though, I know a lot about whiteness because I have to understand it to, to like survive. To survive. Yeah, and so I, I feel like white folks are internalizing messages too about what it means to be white. Mm -hmm. Um, and it leads to some messages. of those behaviors of entitlement and taking up space and right to comfort and silencing people. And so there's healing that needs to happen there and acknowledgement of whiteness and how it's showing up inside of you if you're a white person in this space. I, I want to challenge white folks uh, to recognize that it's, it's highly unlikely that you really know who you are without whiteness. Mm -hmm. And that if you begin with that interrogation, like what's me and what's whiteness? Uh, that you, that exploration will take you very far in terms of finding your connection with everybody that is trying to actively not inhabit whiteness. That that's the nature of it. It's not your fault. It's not like you did a bad thing. It's actually set up that way. It's designed that way for you to not be able to distinguish yourself from whiteness itself. But you are not whiteness because you're in a white body. And you get to decide that. And if you want to be in your own power, that you, you should do the interrogation necessary to decide, like, what is whiteness that I'm inhabiting, that I inherited, that I didn't ask for, and that I choose not to continue to inhabit? And, uh, you know, what do I, what am I actually going to continue to inhabit? Maybe I'm going to use it and I'm going to leverage it. But actually be in choice about it instead of just walking around with some inheritance, like, you know, some stink socks that somebody gave you and you didn't ask for and you're just walking around wearing them going like, it's not my fault that I have this funky smell about me. It's up to you to actually decide what of whiteness you're going to participate in because it's not true that it's just the way you are. It's actually calculated. It's a design. You can look at it, you can pull the curtain back on it. Believe me, we have to live looking behind the curtain of it all the time. And so you can do the same for yourself too and liberate yourself from it. Well, and in my own practice, you know, I feel like I have to reckon with that all the time while acknowledging that I continue to benefit. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, those two things are happening at the same time, right? How do I reclaim my power mm -hmm. and my sense of identity, separate of whiteness, and how do I have choice? And I'm still benefiting. Mm -hmm. And I'm still benefiting. Sean. Yes, ma'am. We're white women. <laughs> yeah, you are. And we've been fucking shit up for a real long time. 53% <laughs> um, of white women voted for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. yep. Susan Collins. 
Um, um, women calling the cops, white women calling the cops mm -hmm. um, repeatedly. Um, um, so what is, what is our work? What is our responsibility? White, white women to white women. Mm -hmm. I'd have to say that I think the shift happened for me when I would think about I want to be, um, I want to be someone who is an activist, anti-racist activist. It wasn't really true until a moment I can actually say that I am actively a racist, mm -hmm. that I can own that mm -hmm. without a yeah but. Yeah. I am a racist, I'm homophobic, I'm transphobic, I'm biased, I'm prejudiced, I stereotype. I can't not, because I was raised in a white environment with white religion, with a white education, with white politics, in the same way I inherited the, my curly hair and the color of my eyes, I also inherited the fear of survival, the fear of, uh, or the need for power, the, all the bias, prejudice, racism, sexism, homophobia of my ancestors. It lives in my body in the same way it reflects in the color of my skin and my hair and things that are external. There's no way that I can't be any of those things. Um, I'd be enlightened. I would have bypassed my whole humanity if I wasn't racist. It would be a miracle. So I think um, the, the accountability is key. The moment we can say, yes, I am racist, and odds are, is now on a rational level, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't identify that way, but put me in a situation where my rational brain turns off and I'm having a, a, an experience that, that puts me into a sense of survival, I'm going to revert back to what my reptilian part of my brain and body knows. I'm unsafe. These people are scary. I don't know that, except that my grandmother knew that. My great-grandmother knew that. That lives in my body. And it lives in our bodies. I think that's the most radical thing we can do is take accountability and ownership. It's the only way anything is going to change. You can't change what you won't see. You can't heal that which you reject. And so we can run around the world pointing to everyone and saying, you all need to stop being racist, you all need to stop being homophobic, et cetera, et cetera. I think the real change happens the moment we say, yep, that's me, and I'm gonna work my ass off to take ownership for those moments where I want to call the cops because someone's living black. Mm -hmm. Or I want to vote for someone who perpetuates policy that oppresses and that celebrates inequality. Mm -hmm. Those are the moments where it's like I feel my body magnetized to a choice and it's like, who? this is old stuff. This is not who I choose to be. I'm gonna pull all that energy off me and sit in the discomfort because I don't know what's on the other side. I don't know, I imagine it's love. But what evidence do I have? That's the emergence. What's the relational work from for between white women? I'm just thinking about like what you said about accountability. Like like how do we call one another up without calling one another out? Like how do we like lean in fierce mm -hmm. so that we can like go get our people mm -hmm. and take care of that mm -hmm. um, without actually like leaving it to black women to actually have to like mm -hmm. um, educate us and. And, and carry the burden of like telling us how things are. Like, what do you think is that relational responsibility that we have? I can only speak for myself in that to model the vulnerability that is required to take ownership and hopefully normalize it to such a degree that other people 
other white people will feel comfortable enough to be willing to be in dialogue without shame or without having to somehow be above it as if they're, they're separate from that shadow. I think modeling um, that, being willing to make mistakes, holding space for others to make those mistakes, um, listening more, uh, being in environments where there's people who actually have walked this and know what they're doing and paying attention, noticing what it feels like in my own body, identifying what it looks like in someone else's when they're shutting down or getting reactive or defensive, and finding ways to acknowledge that and coax a different conversation out. I don't know. I really, it really depends on the environment. I know how I have to use my platform, and it does not include telling other people how they should be. It includes just being and opening up a dialogue that supports justice, equality, and change, but from the inside out. So accountability, that's the word that's in my head all the time now. Own it, own it, own it. So if, um, if we are to reimagine, if we've broken the table and we're reimagining wellness, and I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna ask Sean and I to kind of step out of this part of the conversation, because if white folks have been the designers of wellness for this long, for the, the institutional wellness, not the idea of wellness that we've been trying to cultivate, yeah. but the, that, the, what we've been taught wellness is, what we see wellness is in the marketplace and in the media, um, if, if, if um, um, Angel and Asa, Michelle, if you, be, if you were the designers, of this new emergent wellness um, that hasn't been indoctrinated by whiteness. What does it look like? I think the, one of the first things to acknowledge for me in that conversation is to be able to say, even if you say, here are the African-Americans, here are the, in, the indigenous folks, here are the Latinx people, none of, here are the white people, none of us are a monolith inside of our communities. And so there really is not one way for anyone to achieve wellness, even if we all have the same goals around wellness, there's like so many different ways for us to reach those places. And I think the most important thing for us is to figure out ways to both acknowledge the indigenous wisdom that all of our communities have. Like even, I would like to speak to all the white people in the audience, you even have indigenous wisdom. Your family came from somewhere. There are practices and tinctures and all kinds of things. No, seriously. Like, if your family's from Ireland, you best believe your great-great-grandmama was making something up when somebody got sick. Like, there is indigenous wisdom in all of our communities, and we must be able to be able to first say, I get to acknowledge myself and my history, my socioeconomic, my blah, 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 for what it is and that I need to keep that in mind when I'm thinking about what it means for me to be on a path to wellness. And so that's the one thing is like, yes, what we need to be able to figure out how to tap into that indigenous uh, knowledge because our bodies respond to that. Whatever our ancestors did, that's what our bodies respond to. And the other thing is like to really create space to listen to people because people know what wellness looks like for them. Part of the terrible thing about white supremacy and privilege, and, and also like us acknowledging our own privilege. I have class privilege. I went to Spelman College. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So like, So like, we need to be able to, we need to all, all our own, our own stuff too. Mm -hmm. And like the wet, whiteness thing also leaves behind poor white people. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Like poor people are getting the business out in these streets, for real. And so like, did y'all know there's this thing called popular education? 
It's a system of learning that acknowledges that the wisdom is always in the room. Mm -hmm. So if you want to know how somebody needs to get well, you ask them, what do you need? What is your vision for your own wellness? How can I support you in getting there? So we're not building something that takes into account people's own bodies, wisdom, and the wisdom of their ancestors, whoever those ancestors are. That is what I, that's the first step. I love the question, and it also, um, feels unfair in a way um, because I want a vision about the world in which I want to live and I want all of us to be able to be well and we're not there yet and so I'm just acknowledging that I'm heartbroken that we're not there yet Um, and I want to reimagine wellness and just wanted to name that and I don't want a table I want a circle Um, I want to be able to like look at people and be with them and see them and hear them your question of asking people what they need. It's what I said earlier when I said remember to remember. It has to do with our ancestors um, and the wisdom that is inside of us from, from them. And the wisdom will pass on. Um, and I'll come back to what I said about what wellness means. For me, it means space to breathe. And so reimagining wellness is, is um, it means living in a space where everyone has access to air. And deeper than that, where we can take a deep inhale and exhale and not just breath in our body, but where we can like breathe into systems um, that we create, breathe into structures and spaces, right, that are for us, that see us, that have been created by us. So that's what, what the reimagining looks like. I would go back, you know, to what you're saying, Anasa. I think one of the challenges um, and impacts of whiteness is, is that because white folks don't often don't have a sense of where they came from. Yeah. That that actually um, uh, ends up being the the location that I think um, encourages people to not be able to acknowledge like other people's wisdom. So, you know, having some sense of the indigenous wisdom of my of my heritage, I feel really clear that there's indigenous wisdom there in like Peruvian heritage or. Uh, other people's, you know, indigeneity. And I think that the cut-offness is uh, is a problem because then it leaves you kind of empty. And then when when you feel empty, you have to grab at something and and sort of insist on on your your certitude about that thing. And it doesn't leave a lot of room for the multiplicity of ways of doing things and ways of understanding wellness. Um, and, and that does impact us as well. I was at a uh, gathering uh, not too long ago, and there was a, you know, an Afro-Latina sister, and you know, they were talking about their pronouns they, they were talking about opening up the circle and kind of frustrated that we didn't open up the circle with, some, with uh, something about ancestors. And I was like, okay, but that's not how I'm opening the circle, right? So there's also like not creating like some sense of like there is a monolithic way in which, you know, colored people do things and now we all do ancestor stuff and, you know, like we're going to come with our cowrie beads or, you know, our kinta cloth or something like that. It's like we really, we come from different spaces. And as much as I'm black and I identify as black, I'm also multi-heritaged. And I want to be able to own the fullness of my heritage and not have my people you know, giving me stink eye because, um, you know, my great-grandfather is like straight up white Irish. My grandmother's name is Tuli Mae O'Hare. 
and then it got changed to something else because the black folks weren't trying to hear that. Um, but I, 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 what I don't want our thing to, to become is like, now we have some predetermined idea of like what it means to be black or what it means to be really down with your indigeneity or here's the you know, BIPOC like way of doing things and we all start this weird rehearsing things and doing it the exact same way and like looking at people sideways if they don't do this because that means that they're not black enough and ba basically the person said to me is like we're we were doing white space because we didn't open up with ancestors and I was like man come on, like knock it off with that you know we have to be in self-determination and really I think we have to be in collective um, uh, uh, interrogation and in discovery of like what what is that because you know as you said like you know, how, how do we know really what wellness is? I know what wellness is to me in some time and space, but I think I need a long time to just like sit and be in some space that is, um, has plants and, uh, you know, things that are alive and not have the news barraging my poor brain every day and all of the things so I, so it, you know, that I can get to a space of going like, oh, that's what I need. I think that's what I need. You know, right now I'm like drinking bulletproof and protein. <laughs> yeah, I need some of that and some probiotics, please. And, you know, and all of these things. But I, I think we all need a break, really. Like, a, I just need a break to figure out what that is. And I'm so not prepared to talk about what, what wellness is for all of us, other than for all of us to like, just let's just get in here and hash it out. Wow, what a conversation. So grateful to this power panel for their courage, vulnerability, and wisdom. And I want to lift up a couple things that they left us with as we reimagine the future of wellness and what's possible. We need to figure out ways to tap into our indigenous roots so that we can remember to remember. We need to create space for listening, not telling and trust that people know what they need and what wellness means to them. We need to build the conditions where people have the space to breathe for themselves and for one another and breathe change and possibility into our systems. We need to allow for the multiplicity of who we are and be in self-determination around what we need to thrive. And we need a collective interrogation about what wellness is and what it isn't. While this conversation may be coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to examine all the ways our individual and collective wellness has been informed by whiteness and what it's gonna take to get free so that everyone can be well on their terms. Big shout out to our brilliant guests who you can support and follow on Instagram via at Zen Change Angel, at Skill in Action, at Sean Korn, and at Anasa Troutman. Special thanks to Wanderlust who hosted this conversation. DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And to our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you all for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. 
Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And share the love, y'all, by telling your friends to check us out. See you next time.